know, eight games, whatever, you could be seven and one and be one game out. You know, you could be the record we're at. But the reality is, is you know, we got to three and five. There's a reason why we're three and five. You got to fix the reasons why you're three and five. You know, it's it's one game, but it's not like there's an we have a huge margin of error when we take the field. We don't. So we got to make the plays that are winning plays. And there's winning plays and there's losing plays. There's winning football. There's losing football. And we just haven't got over the, you know, we haven't been on the right side of winning very much this year. Especially lately, five losses in six games for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers as they try to figure it out. They had a few extra days after last Thursday night's loss to the Baltimore Ravens to get ready for the Rams. The Rams, who are 3-0 and against the Tom Brady Buccaneers between the 2020 regular season, last year in the regular season, and then in the postseason, the Rams have owned the Buccaneers, a tough matchup for the Bucs, especially because, Peter, the Rams come into the game with as much, if not more, urgency. At least the Bucs are in a bad division where they could get away with falling to 3-6 and six and still get up off the mat. If the Rams fall to 3-5, and five, good luck catching the Seahawks, number one, especially because you have to leapfrog a 49ers team along the way that has swept you. And then if you can't win the division – Good luck getting playoff spot number seven because five and six, it's not in ink yet, but it's in pencil for the Cowboys and the Giants. Mike, you know, the thing that would concern me most right now about Tampa, and I'm not telling you or anybody who pays attention to it anything you don't know, but the thing that really would concern me right now is that you know, okay, so you look at the scoreboard and Tom Brady's and he said on his podcast in about 16 different ways, we got to score more points. Points are what determines whether you win or lose and all, all that stuff. It's, it's Brady being Brady, you know, saying nothing. But in many ways, in my opinion, really saying something because I'm sure inside the building, he has emphasized that, listen, It's futile to talk about all this stuff. We know what's going on here. If we score 16 points a game, which we've done over the last four games, then we're not making the playoffs. We're not winning this division. You can't compete doing that. And the place to start right now, honestly, Mike, the most embarrassing thing about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is their running game. It is shocking how bad it's been and how much they have just basically given up on it. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, Brady's not been awful. He leads the NFL in passing yards. Well, what are you going to do? You lead the NFL in passing yards when you're running for 60 yards a game. When Leonard Fournette is averaging whatever it is, three yards a carry. And, you know, this is an abysmal running game right now abysmal and unless they fix that all this other stuff it's like rearranging the deck chairs on the titanic it doesn't help to have a bad defense and that's what the buccaneers have been as todd bowles has gone from coordinator to head coach some of the players are a little older they've missed akeem hicks in the middle of the line they could be getting him back as soon as this weekend that will help Vita Vea can't do it himself. The pass rush has been compromised. Shaq Barrett's out for the year with a ruptured Achilles tendon. Jason Pierre-Paul is long gone. So 
they, they, they've had issues there. And throw in the Devin White wrinkle, a guy who was phenomenal in the 2020 postseason, a team captain. He had a rough night against the Ravens, whether it was being physically overmatched and mauled by Tyler Linderbaum, the rookie center of the Ravens, or loafing on at least one play, even though Bowles said he loafed, but he's not a loafer. But he loafed, but he's not a loafer. White avoided reporters on Wednesday. On Thursday, he faced the music. Here's a little of what he had to say, specifically as it relates to some sharp criticism he received from Hall of Famer and former Buccaneers defensive tackle Warren Sapp. I don't got no response to that. Um, I mean, people that know football know what was going on. You know, uh, I was on the far side of the field, on our sideline, just with my coverage. And a play happened on the other, on their sideline. I took off running. You know, obviously, I didn't run the fastest over there, but I mean, my teammates know what's going on. And, you know, what, what, it, what, what comes with me with on the field and effort. So, I mean, it really ain't no response on that, man. Uh, salute to him. You know, he did a great job. He won a Super Bowl here. And it's uh, freedom of speech. He can say what he want to say. So, I mean, I respect him. Yeah, when you say people that know football, that's usually a slap at fans. I would say that Warren Sapp knows football. And Sapp basically said, take the C off of Devin White's jersey. And White getting into it on social media with Greg Allman of The Athletic. Uh, Let's dead this, Greg. The play happened. I play a lot of snaps. I'm in chase mode 24-7. I got a little more fatigued than the normal guy because of the long series, but I got to be way better for my teammates, and that's what I meant by my teammates. No, I apologized. So he was tired, but still he understands he didn't give full effort. Tom Brady has his back. It's going to take all of us. We've got you, Devin White. So... Look, he he faced the music. He's heard the the, the noise. He's suffered the consequences. And and now everyone's going to be watching to see how much effort Devin White gives. And, And we see every week guys who are relentless, guys who make plays from 30 yards behind the ball because they don't give up, guys who never give up on a play and make that tackle well beyond the spot where the play began for them. And uh, you expect the linebacker to be relentless. You expect him to be in shape. You expect him to never give up on a play. And 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 something was off last Thursday night. And now, you know, White can fix it on Sunday with uh, an impressive showing against the Rams, Peter. You know, Mike, a lot of times on plays like this, the one where Devin White really looked off, you know, on plays like this, I guess my feeling is that if you do loaf on a play, you deserve to take the criticism. And I'm not saying that going hard on 40 other plays altogether makes up for that. But in general, I would say that Devin White absolutely categorically is not a loafer. You know, and I think Todd Bowles is is correct there. So I think in some ways, this has been a wake-up call for Devin White. You can tell he is chagrined. He's a little embarrassed by this. He's got to be embarrassed regardless of what he says, that Warren Sapp, a Hall of Fame player, essentially is calling him out for not playing hard in a game that this team needed badly, okay? So, look, I think that you take this as a teaching moment, and Devin White should use this as a teaching moment. And... We'll see what we see on Sunday. But I will tell you this. If I am 
uh, if, if I am the director or producer of that game on television on Sunday, I'm isolating a camera a lot on Devin White in this game because it's clear that he understands that he's basically on notice now and people are going to be looking at him. So let's see what happens in this game. And I would be very surprised if anybody says after the game that Devin White dogged it on any play. And, and it was more than just one play that made him the focal point of so much fan criticism. There was an entire highlight reel of bad plays from Devin White in that Ravens game. Whether he was engaged or not, Tyler Linderbaum running him 30 yards down the field before planting him into the ground. So the, the, the problem is he played so well in that postseason yeah. run of 2020. Yeah, he did. He created the standard that he's not meeting now. He was the defensive player of the month for the NFC for September of 2022. That's how far he's fallen off. And you know, Peter, I, part of the reality is this. We know what we are told. We see what we see. He may be injured and they're hiding it. They hid Tom Brady's torn MCL for all of the 2020 season. That may be the explanation for it. That may be why Todd Bowles doesn't have a problem with it. There may be an injury that he has that we just don't know about, which would explain why he's budgeting his effort. He sees a play where he assumes the teammates are going to get the guy tackled and they just so happen to not get the play done. And he's being careful about how much he exerts himself. We don't know. But we do know the teams lie about and cover up and conceal injuries all the time. And that's one of the big stressors for players because the players would like the world to know I'm injured. That's why I'm not playing the way that you're used to seeing me play. And the teams like to keep it under wraps. I think there's a couple of things, Mike, about about players who play 1,100 snaps in a season, okay? That Tyler Linderbaum play you talked about um, is probably a little bit more damaging because Devin White is a really good player, and obviously he should have been able to get off that block, okay? But I still maintain that, you know, just like just like a baseball player who goes in a slump and who has, you know, 15 straight, you know, or whatever, he strikes out eight or 10 times in a row. I think it's possible for a defensive player to do that. The only thing is, is he knows right now, you can control effort. And starting Sunday against the Rams, he has to control his effort. Absolutely. And the... Buccaneers need him. They need this win, even though they're in that bad division. Following the 3-6, and six, there's a point where it's just hard to keep the guys believing. And I know it's helpful to have Tom Brady. He's never going to give up on anything. And no matter how dark it may get, he will find a glimmer of light that they can seize upon. But at some point, you just have to win a game. And, Peter, it doesn't get any easier after this one. they got to pack up the operation, go to Germany, and play a Seahawks team that is a hell of a lot better than anyone expected them to be. I remember when we saw that schedule, I thought, well, Seahawks, Bucks, it's kind of like the Seahawks are playing the role of the Washington Generals for the Tampa yeah. Bay Buccaneers, Harlem Globetrotters, and Tom Brady is Meadowlark Lemon. Uh, it's not going to be like that now. 
it, it isn't going to be like that. Mike, I'm going over there next week to watch that game. And originally when I went over, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, it's Tom Brady uh, going over and he's going to be treated like Paul McCartney and John Lennon when they flew to New York in the early 60s. And like who Pete knows, it, it, it could well be that. But the football game is not going to be that. You know, the football game, I think, is going to be a, a harsh dose of reality for Tampa Bay that this is not going to be an easy game at all. And how much can change from one Sunday to the next if they can manage to beat the Rams and just get themselves believing again and then go to Germany and bask in that glow? It's going to have the two million ticket requests for this game. It's going to have a yeah. Super Bowl vibe to it. I remember Ben Roethlisberger explaining 10 years ago after the Vikings and the Steelers played in London. It's like a Super Bowl. And Germany's never had this. This is the first time, and they're getting Tom freaking Brady right out of the gates. This could be the thing that energizes and rejuvenates. I almost put those two words into one, a la Sims. Energizes and rejuvenates the franchise for the stretch run. And this was a team that was 7-5, and five, limping into the bye week two years ago, and they came out of it and ran the table. And they go to Germany, and what's on the other side of it, their bye week. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. There are people out there who you are. You shouldn't give up. Is- you shouldn't give up on a mic, but the one thing you should do, the one thing you should do is you should expect them to run better or – you're going to have to give up because that, they need to that be pushing. They need to be is, pushing the runner a little bit more in Tampa yeah, Bay. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Let's get behind Leonard Fournette. Let's get two or three monsters behind him and start pushing. And that'd be a fun, that'd be really fun football to export to Germany. <laughs> well, they, they, it'd be, it looks familiar. It'd be rugby. Um, yeah. Okay, so that's, that's the big game of the afternoon in my mind, the Rams and the Bucks. even though they're both sub-500. Sunday night, we got two teams at 5-2, and two, Titans at the Chiefs. The Chiefs are nevertheless favored by 12.5 points in a battle of a pair of 5-2 and two teams. The Titans, I, I don't know what it is about the Titans that, <laughs> the, that they just forget like they're not even there. Peter, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't either, but I think in this game, uh, I, I, I mean, you know, sometimes lines are ridiculous. This line's ridiculous. It, it's, it's just, I, I don't, I, again, look, I never in my life, I would never gamble on this sport. Um, I, 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 would, I would never go in every week and say, oh boy, who do I like this week? Oh, let's put a hundred bucks down on this game. It's insane. It's insane. It's insane. But Mike, I, I, as best you know, and I'll ask you to educate me. Why do you think this line is what it is? Well, I think it's a combination of the Ryan Tannehill injury. I assume that the folks in Vegas know that Tannehill's probably not going to play, but we'll see. And the Chiefs at home. With a week off, and we know how Andy Reid is coming off of a bye, 20-3 and three is his record, more time to prepare, more time to strategize. And, and you could say the Chiefs are better than 5-2, and two, the Titans are worse than 5-2, and, two, and, uh, and, and, and also, also there's an element of they want the betting line 
to approximate. This isn't always the case, but more often than not, the idea is we want half the action on one team, half the action on the other. So we set a line that we think is going to cause that. It's perception of the fans, perception of the betters that cause the line to be where it is because anything lower than that and all the money is going to be on the Chiefs. You know, I guess I would look at that and say that, you know, any team that has Derrick Henry coming off one of his golden games so that you understand, look, did everybody in the world know that with Malik Willis playing that Derrick Henry was going to be the man in this game? Everybody knew. Everybody knew. And they couldn't stop him. And I'm not saying that Kansas City will or won't stop him. But we know what kind of game this is going to be for the Tennessee Titans. They're going to put the ball in the hands of Derrick Henry and say, help us survive. You know, with a quarterback who's not quite ready for prime time yet. So I I just, I don't think this is going to be an out of control game. And look, I I thought what you were going to say, I really thought what you were going to say is that You know, when you look at it, the Tennessee Titans have played one premier team this year. They played the Buffalo Bills, and they lost by 34 points. Good point. You know, so it's easy to say. It's easy to say, well, why would you think that it wouldn't be a double-digit game? Why why would you think that? But I just think the way Derrick Henry is playing and the way that line is blocking right now, I just find that line to be uh, really heavy, <laughs> really heavy. It's it's one of the simplest formulas in football. You've got a great running back. The other team has an unstoppable offense. So you just run the ball, take the full 40 seconds, run the ball, take the full 40 yeah. seconds, have long drives, yes. keep Patrick Mahomes on the sideline. So then when he is on the field, he's maybe pressing a little bit more, maybe taking some chances, frustrated because he isn't getting to play. That's your chance of keeping it within 12 and a half and also possibly beating the Chiefs. Every time I see this, I feel like it's wrong. Since Andy Reid became the Chiefs head coach in 2013, the Chiefs are 2-5 and five against the Titans, both regular season and postseason combined, two and five against the Titans. So I don't know. There's somebody out there that that must know something about this one that the rest of us don't to think the Chiefs are 12 and a half points better. Uh, and uh, we'll see. We'll see. It, it really makes a very good matchup even spicier but for the fact that nobody seems to care about the Tennessee Titans. I don't know if it's the uniform. I don't know if it's the name of the team. I don't know what it is. They've been this way for a long time. And they were the one seed for crying out loud last year. But there's just been this malaise around the Titans. Nationally, I'm sure locally, we've seen how Nashville fans support the Predators when they're good. And, you know, they fill out that stadium. They're getting a brand-new swanky stadium down there. Locally, they're beloved. But nationally, Peter... You know, especially if we take good teams, bad teams, the least exciting or interesting of the good teams is going to be the Tennessee Titans. And for a while, they were the least interesting of the bad teams. Well, I think what people look at when they look at the Titans and why a lot of people have sort of fallen out of love 
with the Tennessee Titans. Look at their last three playoff games. They fight hard in Kansas City in the championship game a couple of years ago, uh, or three years ago, and they lose that game. Then uh, the next year in the 2020 playoffs, they have Baltimore at home, okay? And they lose to Baltimore at home. And then last year, Tannehill throws three interceptions, the final one in the final minute. And Evan McPherson is, you know, like kicking a helium ball. And, and so the Bengals beat them. But they're, particularly their last two playoff games at home, not against, te- against teams that they were both favored to beat. And I think they were favored to beat the Bengals handily. Uh, you know, it's, you look at the recent history, and I kind of understand why people have fallen out of love with Tennessee. But... They've been a fantastic regular season team, obviously. In 2019, they had that stunning takedown of the top-seeded Ravens in the Lamar Jackson MVP season on a Saturday night in January, and that's just kind of – it's kind of been forgotten. It's like whatever – and we just forget about Derrick Henry. Like, Derrick Henry is great. He's still great, and it's just – I don't know what it is. But on Sunday night, you will not be able to ignore the Tennessee Titans. They get a chance – to prove to everyone that they belong in the conversation in the AFC if they could take out the Chiefs or at least cover the spread. Let's take a break. We will rip through some of the other matchups for Week 9 of the 2022 regular season when PFT Live, presented by Google Pixel, continues right after this. It's just football. I mean, it, yeah, I feel like almost every week you guys are asking what happened in the first half compared to the second half. It's just football. And, uh, you know, you got to have short term memory. you got to move on. you got to make plays when something you played before didn't go well. And, you know, we're going to keep growing and trying to, trying to get better. Zach Wilson had a rough week against the New England Patriots. His reward is a game against the Buffalo Bills. 12.5 point <laughs> spread in that one. Another game. Between two teams that are above 500 and the spread is 12 and a half points. This one's easier to understand, though, because the Jets are the Jets. Sorry, Jets fans. You know it. You know, you know, you know, that you know that you're just waiting for the bottom to fall out of this season. And the Bills are looking like a team that is destined to play in the Super Bowl or at a minimum the AFC championship game against the Chiefs and somehow lose that one with some crazy outcome. Regardless. The Jets have a tough one here. Zach Wilson needs to settle it down, not do dumb things. We saw him throw a couple of stupid interceptions last week and play with just a weird, reckless abandon. How can they avoid getting blown out by the Bills, Peter? I don't really know how. Originally, I would have said that, well, you got to give the ball to Brees Hall 30 times. (laughs) We're a little too, too weeks too late on that one. But... I think the one thing, Mike, when I think of this game, I think that this had to be an absolutely vital week for Zach Wilson because no matter what uh, Robert Sala said after this game, and he was very supportive of his quarterback and all that, look, we all watched the game. This guy threw three picks. Two of them were absolutely inexcusable. You know, almost like lazy throws. Okay, so, so like, I really wonder right now, really wonder, 
Okay. What would Robert Sala do? Okay. If Zach Wilson has a repeat performance in this game, what happens if he throws three interceptions and one or more is like off the back foot, lazy, dumb, whatever it was like that last one to Devin McCourty, which was ridiculous. So my question is, if you're Robert Sala and you've got a team that you say, even if they lose to the Bills, they have got a heck of a shot to be the sixth or seventh wild, you know, team in the playoffs. And so you ask yourself, don't you? What are we doing? Are we playing to groom our quarterback and to show faith in our quarterback and to give him reps and to get ready for the future? Or should we say, what the heck are we doing? We need to play to make the playoffs this year. That's a lot more important if we could make the playoffs this year than bruising the confidence in the ego of Zach Wilson. And, you know, going into the season, I thought there were 13 real contenders in the AFC, and the Texans, Jaguars, and Jets were the three that I thought had no chance. Now, the Jaguars, after threatening to prove me wrong or proving me right, but the Jets have been far better than expected. I thought a good season for the Jets would be six or seven wins, lay the foundation to make your move next year. And that's the balance here, Peter. Do you keep grooming Zach Wilson in the hopes that year three he can make the Josh Allen leap? Because we saw Josh Allen do some dumb and reckless things his first two years, and then he matured into the role that we we now see. And Wilson's got the skills. He doesn't have the size, but he's got the skills to elude the rush, extend the play, get out of the pocket, make things happen. But when those things you make happen are bad – It's better to just take the sack or throw the ball away from the pocket. So that's where he needs to learn. That's where he needs to grow. That's where he needs to mature. And I think they stick with him because they see what he can be next year. How much can you prop him up this year? And if they just avoid getting embarrassed by the Bills on Sunday, maybe that gives them the confidence they need to win enough games down the stretch. Mike, you know what they need? They need a moral victory. They need a moral victory. That's 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 what this comes down to. They're not beating the Buffalo Bills. But but if if they play a game in single digits, you know, that's decided in single digits and Zach Wilson makes three or four big throws, I that's what this Sunday is about for the New York Jets. Hey Peter, that's exactly what the Packers did on Sunday night. They got themselves a moral victory, or more accurately, they avoided being demoralized because it would have been 45-10 to yeah, 10 yeah. if they hadn't run the ball, run the ball, run the ball all night long, even when they're down 27-10, run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, because you don't want that final score to be something that destroys your season. And now the Packers get a chance to come off of that moral victory at 3-5. and five. They go to Detroit, where the Lions are 1-6. and six. They haven't really been blown out or embarrassed. They're close. They just they can't finish the job. They couldn't finish it against the Dolphins most recently, and now they have their arch rivals. I don't think the Packers regard the Lions as arch rivals, but the Lions regard the Packers as arch rivals coming to town. What what do you want to see in this game from Aaron Rodgers and the Packers to make you think they have a chance to turn it around? I'll tell you what I want to see. I want to see Aaron Rodgers is not the focal point of this offense. I want to see Matt LaFleur come into this game and say, okay, last week against a good defense, 
my two running backs ran it 30 times for 197 yards on the road in the toughest environment today, today, to play football. So I want Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon to own this game in Detroit. Why do I want them to own this game in Detroit? Because time and again, we've seen that the passing game can't. And why wouldn't you run A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones, say, 35 times in this game? Against a team that has allowed 5.1 yards per rush this year? To me, it's it's the most logical game plan that Matt LaFleur could have ever put up in three and a half years. Run the ball, run the ball, and then when you've run it a lot, run it some more. And that's going to be the key. The Packers are a team that can be very dangerous if they get that last playoff spot. It's going to be tough to catch the Vikings in the division, although the Vikings have proven in the past they know how to collapse a, a, a great start into a crap finish. But if the Packers get in, I, Peter, I don't know if you and I have talked about this because the days blur together, but I know Sims and I have have kicked around this idea that the Packers are more dangerous as the six or seven seed than they are as the one seed because if they're the one seed, they're too tight. If they, if they get in, skin of their teeth, yeah. and nobody expects anything from them, they could be very dangerous in the playoffs. Can you imagine, Mike? I mean, think about this for a minute, Mike. Suppose the Green Bay Packers are the seventh seed. You know who the two seed is? The Minnesota Vikings. And just imagine how the Minnesota Vikings are going to feel if their old friend Aaron Rodgers is coming into U.S. Bank Stadium on January 15th. I, I'm just, I mean, it's the, in the immortal words of Laura King, I'm just saying, Dad. So to me, when I look at this, when I look at the Packers, I could not agree with you more. Because you know what, Mike? By mid-January, you know who's going to be a really good football player? Romeo Dobbs. You know who might be a good contributing football player? Christian Watson. And, and, and again, look. I don't know what's going to happen. None of us know what's going to happen. But I, st- I find it a lot more plausible that the Green Bay Packers can get to the playoffs than the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, even though the Bucs are in that awful division. So we'll see. Well, they both get in, and they both can be a problem because you've got quarterbacks who can step up. That's the key to a low-seeded team making a run, having – a franchise quarterback who can get it done in January. The Dolphins and the Bears get together. I remember a time in 1985 when the Dolphins were the only team that beat the Bears. That Monday night football game in early December with the the, still, I think, the biggest audience, although the 49ers-Giants game from 1990 may have eclipsed it by a little bit. But now the Dolphins are riding high. The Bears feel like they're in the middle of a tank-slash-rebuild which trade acquisition from this week? Because the Dolphins picked up two players, Jeff Wilson Jr. and Bradley Chubb. The Bears got Chase Claypool. I, I think that's more for the future than for right now. Which one do you think has the biggest impact in this game right away? New team, five days later, they're in uniform and they're expected to perform. Bradley Chubb in Miami. And I'll tell you why, Mike. You know, it's a lot easier to learn the pass rush playbook you know, than it is to learn 
the you know a new offense and for Chase Claypool to come in and to say to Luke Getzey, the offensive coordinator, okay, what are we doing here? And so I kind of look at this and I say, okay, let's look at Bradley Chubb and what he can do in this game. And in my opinion, what he can do in this game is wreak havoc. He's healthy. And look, I'm, I, I, I am not crazy long-term about this trade because Bradley Chubb has missed so much time with injuries. I just, you know, obviously if he's healthy the next three years, it's a great trade for Miami. But he just has not been able to stay healthy. I'll just say one other thing, Mike. What really is interesting to me about the NFL is how nothing is forever. And remember, we were sitting here two weeks ago on this show basically, you know, almost ridiculing the Chicago Bears. And uh, they're never going to be good. Their offense is terrible. They can't score. They can't do this. In the last two weeks, they put up 62 points. And they are a legitimately, uh, you know, threatening right now. They're a legitimately threatening offensive team. Because if you look at it, they played at New England and at Dallas. You can say that New England is in and out, they're iffy and, and, and all that, and Dallas might have its weak points. Those defenses are both top half of the NFL defenses, okay? And the Bears went on the road, and they played very well offensively. And to me, what Justin Fields needs to do in this game is exactly what he did to sort of break out of his shell. More design runs. Luke Getzey learning his quarterback. And so I kind of like, I I think this is going to be a very competitive game. And I like what I've seen in Justin Fields the last couple of weeks. And, you know, for anyone out there inclined to place an over-under wager, as you say all that, I look at the weather, 61 degrees is the high, sunny day, 2% chance of precipitation, a little bit of wind, not as bad as it was supposed to be as of yesterday when we did the picks podcast. But 45.5 over-under with these two offenses, hmm. I I think that I think that number should probably be a little higher, which would cause me to be inclined to say it's going to go over 45 and a half. All right. The Vikings go to FedEx field for the first time since he left the commander's organization. Kirk Cousins is back in FedEx field. Vikings quarterback taking on the commanders. The commanders have won three in a row to get to four and four. Every team in that division, the NFC East is at 500 or better. The Vikings are six and one. I don't know how they're six and one. They're six and one because they've won five games in a row by finding a way in the fourth quarter to make something happen or to luck into something. I don't know if it's been coin flips or I don't know if it's been exerting of their will, but they found a way to do it. Do you think it can continue this weekend for a fan base that's got to be feeling pretty good because the team is winning? And Dan Snyder apparently is leaving. They could actually have a full house, a celebratory atmosphere, a real home feed advantage in this one, Peter. That is a really interesting point to make. Not just that the team is playing better and the team is winning, but now they've got this boost. Hey, show up to show the new owner, Mike. Show up to show Jeff Bezos 
that this is a fan base. We want you. Have some signs in the stadium. Jeff, we love you. Save us, please. But I think when you talk about the game itself, here's what really interests me about the game. And that is the last three weeks, they've won each game. And in in these three games that they've won, they've given up 14.7 points a game. And Mike, one of the reasons why that tells me a lot coming into this matchup, it's a defense playing with momentum against an offense that has sometimes struggled until late in games to sort of rouse itself and to play well enough late in games to win. And so to me, I kind of like this matchup for Washington. I mean, I think they're playing Minnesota at exactly the right time. And I think Kirk Cousins really needs to play well in this game for the Vikings to win. And the Vikings showing their willingness to try to go all in by trading for TJ Hawkinson this week. Who knows how quickly he'll be up to speed in that offense. But, uh, hey, the Vikings have the Bills, the Cowboys, and the Patriots looming after this one. This is a clear and obvious potential trap for the Vikings. And Taylor Heineke, there's a great backstory with him. He was in the Vikings organization in 2016. He had some weird injury a cut or something. He did something to his foot, I think, if I recall correctly. He would have been in position to maybe replace Teddy Bridgewater after that fluke and horrific knee injury. Uh, Instead, the Vikings ended up going out and getting Sam Bradford and giving up way too much to acquire him. But Heineke was, was there, but he was injured, and now he's emerged again as the guy who's holding it down while Carson Wentz's finger heals. But Heineke's played well. And they've won, and they've won, and they've won, and we'll see if they can make it four in a row. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we return, the Seahawks and the Cardinals get together for the second time this season. The Cardinals somehow are favored to win. The Seahawks are getting better and better all the time. We'll break down that matchup from the NFC West when PFT Live continues right after this. Years you weren't regularly playing. What kept your hasn't focused? What what had you on the path for seven years? Uh, I mean, being in the NFL, <laughs> it's a you know it's a day to you know day to day thing, man. You got to be on it every single day. Um, a lot of people wish they're in this position, and uh, you know I'm grateful to have worked myself into this position. Um, also, knowing who I am, um, I'm very set in who I am. I know exactly who I am and what I can do. And so I've never uh, bought into the narratives that have been out there. I didn't just get this good over, you know, the course of one offseason. So, um, you know, I think that's mostly a narrative, and a lot of this stuff is media-driven. But when it comes down to me, um, people where I'm from know who I am. West Virginia, I just got inducted into the College Hall of Fame. Um, So people in college football know who I am. New York Jets as well, Giants, Chargers, and Seattle. So, um, you know, people have continued to let me know that just stay work, keep working hard, and you know things will happen for you. And so that's what I did. Hey, I'm with you, Gino. I support you 100. percent But you lose me when you try to blame the media. What's media driven? He's been around. No one has decided to make him a starter until this year. At some point, it's not media driven. These teams are making the decisions now. Maybe they're making bad decisions. He made the comment after beating the Giants that Jerry Reese and Ben McAdoo believed in him. Maybe others in the organization didn't, and he never got a fair shot there. But it's not media-driven. It's reality, and I admire him. I applaud him for being perseverant, 
for not giving up. We see so many of these guys who enter the NFL as quarterbacks with hype, and if it doesn't work out with that first team, they're just gone. He has hung around. He has pushed. He has fought. He has improved, and now here he is as the starter. It just there was. It's not media driven, Peter. It's not media driven. It's reality, and the reality is he's turned it around. He's playing well, and I applaud him for that. Mike, the two things about the Seahawks that really stand out to me right now, you know, at midseason. Number one, with Geno Smith, he said something to me a couple of weeks ago. I led my column with, you know, Geno Smith, the most, to me, even including the Giants and Jets, the most incredible individual story of this year, single story. And he said that, listen, if you judged Peyton Manning on his rookie year, if you judge Troy Aikman or Steve Young on their rookie years, what would have happened long-term? And he said, it's like judging me in my rookie year where, you know, I wasn't great, but I wasn't awful. And, 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 he, and he's not saying I'm Troy Aikman or I'm Peyton Manning. He's just saying the quarterback position going from college football to pro football is an incredible leap. And, and that's why I think now, and again, we talked earlier in the show, Mike, about Zach Wilson and about, boy, he better look over his shoulder and all that. I, I mean that for now, for today. But I don't think anybody should be giving up on quarterbacks a year and a half into their careers. And that is what is crazy about how quarterbacks are analyzed over time right now. You know, if they don't get it done within two years, throw the bum out. Geno Smith is a great example of exactly why you need to be patient with quarterbacks. That's one thing. The second thing is, we talked about Howie Roseman earlier, all right? And, you know, as general manager. But I think also we need to talk about John Schneider of the Seattle Seahawks. If you look at this depth chart right now, they're starting left and right tackles are rookies, Charles Cross, Abraham Lucas, their first and third round draft picks. You look at their defensive secondary, and you got Tariq Woolen, a fifth round pick. Kobe Bryant, the fourth round pick, is their starting nickel. And then obviously the running back, who just might be, he's going to be in contention, you know, for uh, offensive rookie of the year, uh, Kenneth Walker, was their second round pick. And what has happened is, that the Seattle Seahawks have trusted their coaching staff and their scouting staff. And that's why they're sitting there in first place right now in a division that we all thought they'd be sitting there in last place at the midpoint of the season. Fourth straight win if they beat the Cardinals. They beat them earlier this year, 19-9 to in Seattle. Smith has been playing well. Ken Walker is awesome. Offensive Rookie of the Month, Defensive Rookie of the Month from the same team for the entire league, and they could do the double dip. It's only happened two prior times, the Lions in 1967 and the Saints in 2017 to have both the Offensive and Defensive Rookie of the Year. So it's working for the Seahawks, and the great juxtaposition is the Broncos. I mean, Pete Carroll's got to be loving life right now. The fact that they moved Russell Wilson when they did, they got what they got, and – it's not working for the Broncos and Russell. It is working incredibly well for the Seahawks, but there's still a long way to go. They have to keep at it, and this is an important piece of that puzzle because 
the Cardinals are vulnerable right now. They're at three and five. They are. Look, they beat the they beat the Saints, and we think, okay, maybe they're starting to figure it out. And then they were just kind of sluggish and lackadaisical against the Vikings. They fall behind fourteen to three. To their credit, they they kept trying. They didn't go away. They took the lead, but they weren't able to finish the deal. How much blame between Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray? How much blame do you put? on either or both guy for where this team currently is? Well, I think there's enough blame to go around, Mike. And I think that we saw that maybe there's not a a fracture between the two guys, but we saw that there's a little schism between Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury when Murray comes to the sidelines and is basically yelling at his coach a couple of weeks ago. And I think what that says to me is that Kyler Murray's got to be incredibly frustrated with where they are right now as an offense because there have been times this year that they have struggled mightily. And here it comes. The Saints, this wasn't a couple of weeks ago. It was eight days ago, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so, you know, to me, it takes some guts for, I would say, Uh, a a reserved guy like Kyler Murray to do this. And then for DeAndre Hopkins to feel like he's got to step in between the two guys. You know, that that was a really, really interesting moment right there. And so to me, I think that means that the communication's gotta be better and just maybe the play calls have to be better. But One of the reasons why it's going to be very difficult to me for Arizona to regain, you know, sort of any sort of momentum to try to salvage the sixth or seventh playoff spot is because, look, the 49ers are a lot better uh, than they were, and they're getting healthier. And obviously, Seattle is a lot better than anybody thought they were, than, than they would be. So... Who, how, how in the world, you know, with Dallas, Dallas is making the playoffs. What is the path of the Arizona Cardinals to be playing football on the weekend of January 15th? The path has to be to knock off teams like Seattle and teams that are better than we thought they'd be at the beginning of the year. And, oh, by the way, they still have to play the 49ers twice over the balance of the season. They have the Rams again, and they have the Buccaneers Christmas night on NBC. We'll see if the Cardinals are still even alive by then as they take on Tampa Bay. But uh, whenever I see frustrated Kyler Murray, I think back to the point you made when he entered the NFL. He's lost three games in his entire high school and college career combined. Peter, he lost three games last month football gets harder the higher you climb. And I, I really I really think and this is probably a topic for another day. We we had we had kind of glossed over the whole short quarterback thing like it's not a big deal. It's not an issue. Still an issue. Still an issue. If you can't see over the guys in front of you and they use the cage rust to keep you in the pocket, there isn't a whole lot you can do to use those incredible God given skills from the standpoint of running with the ball if they have you caught and you can't see and you really can't do anything in your five foot ten not easy to do in the nfl let's go ahead and take a break when we return 
We mentioned Jeff Bezos. He has emerged as a potential buyer for the commanders. Also, there was a report last night from Sports Business Journal that helps explain why we got the Wednesday announcement that the Snyders are willing to sell. We'll discuss that when PFT Live continues right after this. Well, that news initially came from People.com yesterday, later confirmed by the Washington Post. Jeff Bezos looking into buying the Commanders, potentially partnering with Jay-Z. Byron Allen, who tried to buy the Broncos, reportedly in the mix as well. Now, look, I just don't think Byron Allen has the financial ability to buy 30% of a $5 billion asset. You need $1.5 billion that you can literally write the check for, that you have cash on hand, plus enough left over to run the team. The finance committee reviews the overall financial wherewithal of a potential buyer and approves or disapproves. But there are going to be some multi-multi-multi-billionaires ready to try to buy this team. And if Bezos wants it, Peter, here's fun fact. David Tepper, earlier this year, was the wealthiest NFL owner at a net worth of 107, or no, uh, of 17 billion. 17 billion was Tepper. Then comes Rob Walton, the new Broncos owner, at 70 billion. Here comes Bezos at Tepper plus 100 billion. So there's going to be some guys out there that can that can not even bat an eye to buy the commanders if they decide to get into the chase for Dan Snyder's team. Mike, you know, there's a reason why Robert Kraft has been so friendly, so, uh, you know, kind of so willing and so wanting to build a great relationship with Jeff Bezos. There's a reason why the NFL was so aggressive in pursuing Amazon as the streaming partner for Thursday night. It's not only because Amazon is huge and because the future is far different than it was when ESPN got involved in cable TV. It is a very simple reason and a very simple fact of life in the NFL. NFL owners like the richest men in the world. They just do. And when there is one out there who has some interest in joining your club in some way, the welcome mat goes out, and the welcome mat goes out so aggressively that it's just logical to think that the NFL would want Jeff Bezos to buy the team. who, uh, 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 And he already owns the biggest newspaper in that market. The Washington Post, who, by the way, Dan Snyder has been at war with almost since he bought the team. That's not a good thing, you know, for the NFL, for the owner of the franchise there for a generation to have used the Washington Post like, you know, a, 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 you know, a mat walking into your house and wiping your feet on. And that's really the way Daniel Snyder has treated the Washington Post. And And all I'm saying is, This makes the most sense of any ownership for any team 
I think that, you know, since I have uh, covered the NFL, every, it's always about the guy who's got the most money. This is more purposeful than o- the guy who only has the most money. It's a guy who already is in business with the NFL, and they love him. So I, 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 don't, I don't know enough about it right now, Mike, to say that it's Jeff Bezos' team to lose. I don't even know if he definitely is, wants to be aggressive to buy this team. But he clearly is a guy who the NFL would love to come and rescue this franchise. There will be others who get involved. Names we're not aware of yet. This is an opportunity for some really rich people to add fame to their wealth. And as a wise man once told me, and I've said it four times this week already on the show, the only thing better than being rich and famous is being rich. Some people find that out the hard way. But Josh Harris, who made a bid for the Broncos and would have paid, we reported this summer, $5 billion if he knew $5 billion would have sealed the deal. But the concern was he offers five and the Walmart clan offers 5-1, and he goes to 5-2, and the Walmart people go to 5-3, so he just tapped out. He wasn't going to put five on the table if it couldn't get him the team. Bottom line is Dan Snyder's getting at least five. Dan Snyder is taking his $750 million original investment, and he's turning it into at least $5, million if, or $5 billion, if not $6 billion by the time it's all said and done. And, Peter, there's been so much speculation, theories floating around about why – the announcement came out of the blue on Wednesday that an investment bank has been hired to help find a buyer. It's no different than listing your house with a real estate company. That's what the Snyders are doing with this team. Ben Fisher of Sports Business Journal reported last night that the explanation is fairly simple. Owners went to Snyder and told him it's time. Owners went to the commissioner and told him it's time. That while Jim Ursay is saying it publicly, there was enough of them behind the scenes sending the message privately to get Snyder. And I'm amazed. I'm amazed because I never thought he would go along with it. But I'm amazed he he's listening. And now the team's for sale. I know there's some people out there that are afraid that this is just some kind of a ruse by Snyder to take heat off of him. He can't walk this back. The reaction has been so overwhelmingly positive to the idea that he's out. There's no way he can put that toothpaste back in the tube. No, this is, I will be very surprised. And and everybody has said, well, wait a minute. What about him taking on a minority owner or two? Let me just ask you a question about taking on a minority owner or two. Who in their right mind right now would pay a billion dollars to be a minority owner to Daniel Snyder. Who would do that? Is there anybody, is there any bank in the world that would say, hey, I got a good investment possibility for you. I want you to invest and to let Dan Snyder be your boss. That is really the way to go in 2023. Let's do that. It's insane. So to me, I, I, I don't see how this does not end with Daniel Snyder selling this franchise. And Mike, I find it totally hilarious that Daniel Snyder, who once said, you can put it in capital letters, that I will never change the name of the team. It will always be the Washington Redskins. And I find it hilarious that just three or four weeks ago, 
that the team issued a statement that basically said absolutely, categorically, that the team will not be sold. Okay, and so what's happening right now? They're in uh, discussions to sell the team or to sell part of it, but I think you and I both believe that it's not going to be part of it. No, it's not going to be part of it. Even if you had a path to control as part of your agreement to become a limited partner with Dan Snyder, you can't trust that he's going to honor it. You just can't, based upon a well-earned reputation of being very litigious, and now you've got these other issues out there and investigations. Can you really trust that he's going to honor the terms of that agreement if you plunk down a billion now and maybe $4 billion later? No, he's going to sell it all. And uh, the real question is, we got to take a break, but the real question is, if he sells it fast enough, does all this other stuff go away? That's something to keep an eye on as time goes by. Time has gone by very quickly. When we return, show me something for week nine. Guaranteed to have no Daniel Jones because the Giants are on a bye. More PFT Live right after this. Week 9 has arrived. It is our Friday in-season tradition. Show me something. Doesn't mean you're under pressure. Doesn't mean necessarily anything bad. We just want to see something from someone connected to one of the teams playing this weekend. Peter, you get the first pick. Show me something coming off the bye, Justin Herbert. And if you've noticed in recent days, Mike, I think every receiver going back to John Jefferson for the Chargers is injured. And it's just, I don't know who is going to play for Justin Herbert. And they have a tough, tough game. They're coming east. They're playing the early 10 a.m. body clock game at Atlanta. And Atlanta is a threat, Mike. And so show me something, Justin Herbert, Show me that you can lift your team in a time of difficulty with your roster, with your depth chart at wide receiver. Show us what a franchise quarterback looks like. Same idea, same round, same draft. Show me something, Joe Burrow. After that, awful performance. No other word to describe it on Monday night in Cleveland, blown out by the Browns. And I know he didn't have Jamar Chase. Well, all the more reason for the quarterback to show us something. Get rid of the ball faster. Do something to elevate the team. Light a fire under the offensive line. The season is hanging in the balance for the Bengals right now. I know they're only a game behind the Ravens, but you lose at home to the 2-6 and six Panthers, it's going to be a long final eight games of the season because you're not going to have many teams – as easy to beat as the Panthers right now, all due respect to Carolina. So this is the time for Joe Burrow to step up and show all those fans in Cincinnati why they want him around for the long haul. He's got to carry the team on his back and win this one. Show me something, Joe Burrow. Show me something, Josh McDaniels. So, you know, Josh McDaniels fell on his sword after an embarrassing shutout loss at New Orleans last week. The Las Vegas Raiders flew to Sarasota after the game. They're playing in Jacksonville on Sunday. They have been away the entire week. Uh, they have tried to just sort of, you know, keep everything in the family 
and rebuild their team right now to try to make something of their season as they sit there two and five going into Jacksonville. This is a really important game for the Raiders, for Josh McDaniels, for Derek Carr. Show me something, all of those entities, but show me something, Josh McDaniels. Show me something, Sam Ellinger, and I mean it in a very aspirational way. The Patriots are a team that can be vulnerable to a quarterback who can move, who can run, who can make things happen unexpectedly. Who knows? Maybe they'll work in a few designed runs in the Colts' offense this week. And also the Colts moving forward without their offensive coordinator, Marcus Brady. Not a scapegoat, but kind of a scapegoat. Sam Ellinger, the guy who is the quarterback for the rest of the year, Matt Ryan benched for business reasons. The Patriots coming to town. Maybe a win over New England on Sunday would be – or wait, they're going, they're going to New England for this one. Regardless, yeah. maybe a win would be enough to hang a banner – Back at Lucas Oil Stadium, if they could beat the Patriots in New England, show me something, Sam Ellinger. And with that, we'll take a break. We'll do round three of the Show Me Something draft when PFT Live continues right after this. There we are. So far, two rounds of the Show Me Something draft for week nine. We've done a good job of touching on games that we hadn't already discussed today. I don't know that we planned it that way. It just sort of happened. One round to go. Peter, what do you got? Mike, I'm going to touch on one other game that we have not touched on yet. Okay. And I want you to show me something, Andy Dalton. A very interesting game on Monday night. Baltimore goes to the Superdome. Baltimore defensively enriched with Roquan Smith and the Saints coming off a very impressive 24 to nothing win over Las Vegas playing well on offense they've rediscovered Alvin Kamara but to me I think that in order to win this game you're going to have to make some plays in the air and not just on the ground Andy Dalton, you've got the playoff fate of your team in your hands. Get the New Orleans Saints to four and five and show me something, Andy Dalton, on Monday night. We now have officially covered all remaining games for week nine. It helps that there were only 12 left because six teams are on a bye. I will say show me something, Dan Campbell, the one and six Lions head coach. He's got four wins in two seasons. All the sound bites and the cliches are impressive and entertaining, but at some point you got to win. When will the Lions reboot again if they can't win games? At some point you have to win games, Peter. And at some point people need to realize that ownership is the issue in Detroit, and it has been for 60 years. And the problem is no one in club oligarch is forcing the Fords to sell because they behave. The team's dysfunctional but they're not on anyone's radar screen, and so the Lions continue to not be competitive. Yeah, and I would just add one sentence to that. Do not fire Dan Campbell because you don't want to start the merry-go-round all over again. You're right. At some point, you got to stick with it and let it play out. We are done. Enjoy the weekend. See you Monday. Monday. 